less than a week before the birth of my second child and months before the passing of my younger brother. I had the opportunity to sit down for what was probably the most important podcast that Making a Difference has ever done. I had a chance to sit down for a second time uh, with the incomparable Dr. Sandy Darity and his wife, Kirsten Mullen. Together, they have combined to be a black star, if you will, for the cause of reparations. They have provided unbelievable insight for all of us through their book, From Here to Equality, which is a masterpiece driven by an understanding of past history, combined with the potential of future policy and what it can and will mean for black Americans. The urgency of this interview was important even before I press record and months later with what we're seeing in terms of this current administration's policy, uh, in addition to the culture of anti-blackness in America, makes this interview and its contents even more urgent. After you hear the contents of this interview, which I can assure you without bias <laughs> that it is worth the investment of your time, I would ask that you do three things. The first and most important thing that I would ask you to do is to take that doubt in your mind that says we will never see black reparations in America. Because what this interview, what this dialogue will do is that through logic, through reason, through policy, through understanding, it will erode at and hopefully eliminate that doubt that you might have that we will not see black reparations in America. The second thing I would ask you to do is I would ask you to look up and invest in from here to equality. This interview is only a supplemental guide at best to the wealth of knowledge and understanding that is present in that book, again, in that masterpiece. So I would ask you to invest in that book. I would also ask you in turn to invest uh, into the Make It A Different show and into investing in independent black media. You can do so uh, with a one-time investment through Cash App. It is dollar sign making, M-A-K-I-N, a difference show. That's dollar sign making a different show. You can also support the show monthly through Patreon at patreon.com backslash making M-A-K-I-N a different show. That is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash making M-A-K-I-N a difference show. Thank you for your support and prayers as we continue this most important movement in these most perilous times. You're listening to Making a Difference. Um, to, be a Negro, to be a Negro in this country and to be um, relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost, almost all of the time. You wonder why I spit the truth and not to make no dope. To make a difference. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Making a Difference. I'm your host, Ken Macon, here with a special guest host, Jerome Ferguson. Good afternoon. We have two incredible guests. I really just can't say enough about them. Think the world of them. Uh, they are co-authors, life mates. Um, they've really presented almost this Bible of reparations. It's called From Here to Equality. Glad to have on the show Dr. Sandy Darity. I want to call her doctor as well, but Ms. Kirsten Mullen. Hi, Mrs. Kirsten Mullen. How are you guys doing this evening? 
We're doing well. Thank you. Yeah. Glad it's to a, be with you. Yeah. To be. Oh, yes, most certainly. Want to, uh, as previously stated, I know there are some folks listening in who are locked in um, and, you know, appreciate you all's work uh, and have thoroughly read the book. I've read it more than once. There are some folks who are saying, you know, who's, you know, who are these folks? What, you know, what is this? What is all this talk about reparations? And what I want to do is, is ultimately, you know, when we have conversations with black folk and we're talking about reparations, I don't think it's so much about the issue of whether, you know, if, if offered where the folks would accept it. I think one of the challenging issues and one of the, I guess, um, spiritual intellectual hurdles is like, will we ever get reparations? And I really just want to consolidate that um, into one simple question, um, or rather one simple uh, commentary I would like to get from you all, is if you can describe the urgent need of reparations for black people. Well, uh, I'll, I'll start. Um, I think there's been an urgent need for 156 years. Uh, and uh, for people who are wondering about the, the reality of reparations, well, we, we almost did receive reparations in the aftermath of the Civil War. There was a promise made uh, to the formerly enslaved uh, 40-acre land grants. And a process was begun of uh, allocating those, those land grants to them uh, under uh, the, the terms of General Sherman's Special Orders Number 15. Uh, which designated a strip of land that begins with the sea islands in South Carolina and ends at the boundary of the St. John's River in Florida. Uh, the special orders number 15 designated this territory as land that was supposed to be settled by the formerly enslaved. Uh, this would have amounted to approximately 5.3 million acres, and it would have been the first installment on uh, an acreage that would have amounted to at least 40 million uh, that would have been provided to the 4 million formerly enslaved. Uh, so that was a starting point, and then there were provisions in subsequent legislation, like the first Freedmen's Bureau Act, mm -hmm. and in the short-lived Southern Homestead Act, which is distinct from the Homestead Act of 1862, but uh, there were provisions in those laws for land allocation to the formerly enslaved, but uh, none of this was actually executed. I think at most out of the Sherman allocation, about 400,000 acres were settled by about 40,000 of the formerly enslaved, but even that land was taken back from them and restored to the former slaveholders by Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, uh, after Lincoln was murdered. And so the process of providing reparations was uh, short-circuited. And it has not uh, been a process that's been activated for 156 years. And so, you know, we think it's long overdue. We know that it can be done, that there are precedents not only in terms of the, the missing 40 acres, but also in terms of the federal government making payments to Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during the course of World War II. So 
I guess our starting point is is saying, why now? Well, because it 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 should have happened a long time ago, and as a consequence of it not happening, we have enormous economic disparities and economic burdens that are placed on Black Americans. Yeah, you know, one of the 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 major problems that you know we are living with today, uh, as a consequence of the federal government's having promised and then denied the formerly enslaved of those 40 acre land grants was the opportunity for them to have property uh, that they could live on, that they could develop, that they could sell or lease, subdivide if they chose. Um, I mean, think about that. 40 acres is not a trivial amount of land. Uh, you know, any lumber on the land, any wildlife on the land, any minerals that were discovered later were theirs to keep. So being deprived of that was really significant. But also, you know, the lack of such an asset meant that they would not have that material good to pass on to their offspring. So not only could they not pass on, you know, any profits from such an asset, they couldn't pass on the, the land itself. Uh, at the same time, we, we know that the federal government did invest in white Americans' wealth building, wealth creation uh, at the same time, and in, including recent immigrants from Europe. So uh, this was a consequence of the Homestead Act of 1862, which provided not 40 acres, but 160 acre land grants almost exclusively to white Americans. Now, these were territories that were further west. This was a, uh, you know, an opportunity for the United States to complete its colonial project. Now, the land that had been promised to the formerly enslaved people was land that had been held immediately by the Confederates. So this is land that they had abandoned or that had been confiscated from them that the uh, the freedmen were being settled on. But in the case of the Homestead Acts, those 160 acre grants, uh, land grants, were property that had just recently been inhabited by indigenous people. So they had been pushed off the land and white Americans then were given these land patents. But unlike black Americans, they were allowed to actually take possession of these land grants. And, you know, it's an incredible difference in, you know, how they started after the war and the kind of reality that the emancipated Black people had. So, you know, we, uh, we know that approximately 1.5 million white households received these land grants. And we're talking about a land mass, total land mass of about, you know, in excess of 250 million acres. So to help your listeners wrap your brain around that, that's a that's a, a land mass that's equivalent to all of Washington State, Oregon, California, Nevada, and Massachusetts combined. Wow. Or put differently, all of California and all of Texas. That's a lot wow. of land. Um, and so, you know, we're now five, six, in some families, seven generations from 1862. Uh, the program was in place for nearly 70 years. I think the most recent, uh, the last land patent was settled in what, 1980? In, in Alaska. 
so a lot of people benefited from this. So we're talking now about 45 million white individuals who are still reaping the benefits of this single government property, the single government policy. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, you know, receiving a, a monthly dividend check from the government. In one extraordinary example that uh, Jennifer Mueller uh, learned about. Uh, she instructed her students to, you know, investigate their own families, you know, uh, wealth positions and to, you know, ask their parents, ask their grandparents, great grandparents, if they were still living, uh, had there been a land grant in their past. And the students were incredibly skeptical. You know, this was not something they'd heard about. It didn't make any sense to them. Uh, many of them had grown up with a very different kind of family narrative that, you know, great grandparents came to the United States with nothing or, you know, very little in the way of assets or, or resources. Uh, but by the dent of their brow or through their, their hard work, their brilliance, their persistence, you know, they had persevered and prevailed. But in fact, in, the, in a class of 150 students, 100 of whom identified as white, and of the remaining 50, I think 12 or 13 uh, identified as black and the others of color, none of the black students and none of the students of color learned about a land grant patent in their families. Of the white students, a full 25% of them Man. had a land grant. They were astonished. So much for the They were astonished. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then in one of the instances, um, so a student whose family had received a land grant in the panhandle of Texas in 1880, they decided not to live on the land, but to lease it. So here they're receiving, you know, a revenue stream from this property. Then the grandfather who had received the patent died. His widow decides to move with her eight children to Austin, Texas, so that they would have a, you know, a greater likelihood of going to college. Six of the eight go to uh, university and graduate. Their mother dies. The, the children decide to continue to lease the property and split the proceeds eight ways. Then in 1980, a full 100 years after the family had received the patent, natural gas is discovered on the property. And in the first year alone, uh, they re uh, the, the revenues from that gas deposit were over $100,000. So, you know, this is an extraordinary example of, you know, a single government program enriching white Americans while black Americans not only didn't get that 160 acre land grants, didn't get the 40. So, you know, but this is, this is how wealth happens. Wealth is not just this casual thing that an individual sets out to achieve. You know, it's something that is transferred across generations. And the federal government gave white Americans an opportunity to do just that through the Homestead Act specifically. It was one of the earliest such programs of affirmative action for white people while disadvantaging black Americans. I, <laughs> wow. And now the listening audience, I hope you guys understand like why we love yes. <laughs> this power couple so much because just ask one modest question and, 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 <laughs> and I mean, in, in amazing fashion, that's why I tell people, you know, you got to get this book because basically the first, once you read the first 20 pages, I mean, it'll hook you and won't let you go. And that's a really good point because I wanted to get you guys um, insight into something. So let me just kind of go back for a second. So when I got the book, I bought the physical book as well as the audio book, right? 
And when I, you know, one of the things that I didn't anticipate is for it to be about, you know, have as much history in it as it did, right? So in addition to, my favorite chapter is the chapter where you break down the, you know, pretty much what a reparations program would look like. But along the way, just learning the history, specifically, um, you know, folks like Andrew, President Andrew Jackson, Jackson, who, you know, that was a character there. I'll just say that. And um, I just, I was just, I, I was always curious, what were some of the, I guess we could say, under, unintended consequences of your, um, uh, of the book, right? So a year yeah. ago, you, you guys published the book. So a year later. When you guys look at some of the things that, you know, have transpired based on, you know, interactions you had with maybe other scholars or interviews that you participated in, um, whether it be, you know, radio, um, print. I'm just curious, what were some of the things that happened after the book that you said, oh, wow, I didn't expect that? You know, whether it be positive, negative, um, indifferent. I was just curious to know. So let's start with you, um, Mrs. Mullen. How about that's a, it's a really good question. You know, actually, before the book had even been printed, uh, before it had even been published, we received a call from Marianne Williamson, who you may recall was, you know, one of the early uh, candidates for the office of president. And she was holding a town hall in Charleston, South Carolina, and asked us to go on. I can remember being so nervous uh, <laughs> about doing this. You know, it was filmed and it was really funny. Um, we insisted that we do it together because I was just, I was afraid I just couldn't find my voice. I was just so, so anxious about the whole thing. And so we're sitting side by side uh, at my desk. But what people couldn't see was my knee jumping under the table. <laughs> and Sandy, you know, was had his hand on my knee, you know, calming down. About 15 minutes into it, I, I calmed down. But that really began this, this sort of public conversation about the book, our, about, yes, you know, yes. for us, our, our you know, and how this, how, you know, how did this connect with her intimating, you know, uh, she was the first serious presidential candidate in our memory who, you know, deigned to mention the R word of reparations. <laughs> and even though what she articulated was, we thought, woefully inadequate, she was one of the few who was willing to say that reparations absolutely needed to happen, that the United States owed a debt to, you know, black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Um, I think she put a dollar amount on it. What was it? Five hundred billion dollars. Well, initially, it was one hundred billion. But and then she, she raised, raised it to five hundred, which we're saying is still too low. And I remember yeah. that um, moment from that debate, the CNN debate. And when she brought it up, when um, Don Lemon yes. asked her of, of what qualified her to you know bring it up. And she had that moment that. Um, I think afterwards they said that she was one of the most, she was the most Googled candidate that night after that debate. I remember that. Yes. Right. And, yes. and, and we and, also and remember, we also well, remember Kamala Harris diverting the conversation <laughs> yeah, that was by, by talking about school, to, school desegregation. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so yeah. we thought that was interesting uh, to observe. Yeah. But, um, no shame. but I think no shame. Be, well, <laughs> <laughs> using my words, choose my words carefully. But, um, but I think, you know, Marianne Williamson's bravery, and I would say that was a brave act on her part, you know, quite likely um, led to Julian Castro and then Tom Steyer coming forth and saying they too supported reparations in some form. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, because before people weren't talking about reparations. It just was not, it was not a wise political move, mm. you know, for a candidate to make. And so we have been surprised to see just the term itself being so widely brought up. Now, what, what individuals mean by reparations mm. also varies greatly. Uh, and we have spent a lot of time trying to explain what we mean by reparations and how it differs from what we would characterize as racial equity initiatives. Yeah. Um, you know, this whole slew of local initiatives, local plans that cities and now some states have put forth that they have mislabeled reparations. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, chief among them would be, you know, the Evanston, Illinois housing voucher program or the state of New York yeah. is working on a reparations program. Asheville, North Carolina, um, Burlington, Vermont. I mean, the list is, it's, it's not a huge list when you think of all the cities uh, and states in the country, but it's growing. Cities and states want to be counted among the, the good guys. And, you know, we have a saying in our household that we want to be there before we get there. And by that, we mean we want to just jump to the destination without performing any of the work that's required to get there. We don't want to save any money. We don't want to, you know, do any research on where we're going. We don't want to, you know, say, uh, get the cars, you know, repaired. We just want to just get on our magic carpets and be at the destination. And it's unfortunate because, you know, people are saying, oh, look, reparations is happening. It's happening everywhere. <laughs> but if the co-opting co of the term is real. You know oh, what I mean? it's really, it's really and frustrating. I think to me, that was the, uh, and Kitten, I know you want to get in here, but just real quick, to me, that was one of the unintended consequences that I noticed and was that people are using that phrase so much and that phrase can be polarizing, but they're co-opting it in a way to, in my opinion, dilute it of what it really is. And I think it's intentional. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or, or just thoughtless in some cases. But but no, yes, I think, I think both I think both are <laughs> I think I think both are operating. I think both are operating. Uh, you know, they're individuals who you know haven't really given it a whole lot of thought. You know, they they know they want to support reparations, but they are not absolutely certain what they mean mm -hmm. by it. And Mrs. Moore, um, it may just be the millennial cynic cynic in me just to assume malintent on everyone's part <laughs> so please forgive me <laughs> well you know I, I i will say this you know i, I want to go back to marion williamson and 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 the bravery that that kirsten mentioned i think a lot of people don't realize that she was actually an individual who'd been advocating reparations for a quarter of a century in terms of her own writing about america's need for racial justice mm -hmm. so it is an interesting question as to what was going on in 2019 that led her to make that type of public pronouncement in the context of a presidential campaign and led two other candidates to also say that they supported reparations. And it was January, January 29th. January's when she first, yeah, when she first spoke out. Um, but, uh, you know, there's something special about 2019 because the conversation about reparations really picked up at that point and it preceded uh, the event that has led to many, many people saying that they are committed to a social justice agenda, which was, uh, you know, the murder of George Floyd. 
in 2020. Mm -hmm. But we already had the reparations conversation underway. And now maybe George Floyd's death has accelerated the conversation, but it, it had become surprisingly serious before then, to the point where people are saying that they're in, you know, they, they're, they're running toward the, the term reparations after running away from it so, so long. Yeah. My name is Lauren Macon, and you are listening to Making a Difference with my handsome husband, Ken Macon. This is Donald Doe and Michael Doe with Family Financial Consultants. Do you need help with Medicare, with affordable mortgage and life insurance, building an estate for your child? We provide these types of services for you and much more. As independent insurance brokers, we take pride in coming into people's homes and not only saving them money, but changing their lives. Imagine only paying a few dollars for your medicine instead of hundreds, or cutting the cost of your insurance premiums. Our goal is to provide affordable policies tailored to your individual needs. Give us a call at 803-293-8915 or 706-503-3933. Family Financial Consultants, LLC, located at 412 Edgefield Road in North Augusta, South Carolina. Agents work for companies, but a broker works for you. It's the West Coast diva. Tell them, follow the leader. It's yo, yo. You're listening to Making the Difference with Ken Making. I did want to jump in and ask you guys if you could share with the listening audience, um, aside from the, the malintent, which is, is certainly, of course, a factor. I think a, a, a lot of what I think will help folks if you guys can kind of make the distinction between local programs such as the one in Evanston versus mm-hmm. a federal program, which I know is um, some of what you all propose, if you could just talk about the difference. And I think that will really help people understand the investment that needs to be made to get um, to secure the amount of reparations that's going to be necessary for, you know, the arc in that aspect. True reparations has at its heart the elimination of the racial wealth gap. And what we're talking about here is a difference in the household wealth of black and white families. And presently, we're talking about $850,000 per household. To eliminate that gap across all of the Black American descendants of U.S. slavery, that is to say, these are the people whose family members were enslaved in the United States and denied those 40-acre land grants, denied the opportunity to profit from and pass on the land itself and any profits from them to their progeny and thereby build wealth across generations as many, many white families have done. So we're talking about a program that makes that possible. When you look at a program like Evanston's, for example, my understanding is they have a ceiling of $10 million and a program horizon of 10 years And the idea is that the city recognizes that from 1919 to 1969, it discriminated against Black people in the housing market. And what they want to do to make amends is to provide $25,000 housing grants, a one-time only housing grant, to people who are currently living in Evanston. And the money could be used for the down payment on a new home in Evanston or for maintenance and repair of an existing home. All right, first of all, the the funds are derived from the the cannabis tax, so the marijuana tax, 
So the amount of money that they have at any given time is going to fluctuate. Mm. You know, they're not going to be able to say we have, you know, we're going to give out 20 grants this year or whatever. So apparently the, the first draw was supposed to be $400,000. So that's 16 people, 16, you know, families. For all of those, was that 50 years of discrimination? Yeah. Um, it's a pretty small pot of money. The other thing is, say you, you know, say you have a house. You're not, you know, you, 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 your house is in, in excellent repair. You know, you actually need some money in your retirement account. Or you like to buy some commercial property as an investment. Well, you can't use the money for that. Uh, the other thing, too, we believe that reparations should be made directly to the eligible recipients. The Evanson program mandates that the money goes straight to the bank. Oh. <laughs> so, you know. Here. Forgive me. I love so, just look the disgust. Yeah, black 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 residents don't even get to touch that money. Uh, um, if you have left the city of Evanston, you're not eligible. Um, you know, this is not going to close that eight hundred fifty thousand dollar per household wealth gap. It 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 it's a, a decent, not a great a housing voucher program. And we wish that they would call it that. Mm. You know, but don't call it reparations because other cities are jumping to do something similar. Oh, we can do that. We can come up with $10 million (laughs) for a housing voucher program and call it reparations and get, you know, be in international news. Yeah, my old hometown. Yeah, Massachusetts Massachusetts is is trying something similar. Um, And we can get, you know, the benefit of the accolades and you know, get put on the, the best cities to live in United States list, <laughs> um, wow. without having done that hard work of pushing for a national program of true operations. I mean, what we would like to see these cities do is, you know, yes, go ahead and put these programs in place, you know, begin to work on creating goodwill in your town by doing what you should have done all along, you know, by including you know, the black community in all of the activities of the city, whether that means government contracts, if that means who gets appointed to commissions and committees, et cetera, who's being hired, you know, at all levels of, you know, municipal and state governments, do that. But also demand that Congress pass this program of reparations for black American citizens of U.S. slavery. They could do both. You know, they could they could write resolutions, they could, you know, press their local representatives and say, this is something that's really important to us. We're trying to do right by the black people in our city or our state. And we think one of the best ways to do that is to push for a national program of reparations. That's good. Yeah, I would, I would like to add, we know that they're outright opponents to reparations, but they're also proponents of reparations who are creating an obstacle course. Mm-hmm. And I think there are four ways in which they are doing this. One is by being uh, advocates of these local reparations initiatives, mm-hmm. which uh, are not going to, as Kirsten points out, eliminate the racial wealth differential. The second way in which they are creating additional obstacles is through their support of the legislation to form a 
a study commission for reparations at the national level mm -hmm. under H.R. Uh, 40. I guess what the Senate bill is 1083, yes. I believe. They're the same bills, mm -hmm. but there are a number of weaknesses in H.R. 40 that make it unlikely to, for it to get us from here to there. And to the extent that people are supporters of H.R. 40, they are supporters of a commission that is not really going to produce true reparations. Mm -hmm. The third thing that some proponents do that creates a further obstacle is to invoke this phrase that reparations should be more than a check. Mm -hmm. well, from our perspective, the check is pretty significant. Yeah, let's start with that Let's check. start with the check, <laughs> and then we can figure out what else we might need after that. And then the fourth obstacle that's created by proponents is to argue that we should have a wider range of eligible recipients mm. than Black Americans who are descendants of U.S. slavery. Yeah, that's my favorite. Uh, and and this this is really <laughs> <laughs> this really distorts the mission and shifts the focus away from the descendants of persons who were denied the forty acres. Mm -hmm. Man, just great points all around. I, having recently talked to my local city council, I can see very easily how folks, you know, will even try to t maybe take some of the resources from the American Rescue Plan and take some of those monies that the Biden administration has given out and then try to enact some type of reparations plan off of those. And I can, it's just, yeah, you, you can see very easily how you can get away from the mission. With that, right. with that said, I do want to ask, how important is the accurate and adequate teaching of history? in regards to securing reparations for black people? That's huge. I mean, you know, we are convinced that a, a major cause of the opposition to reparations is, you know, not knowing our history, you know, our, our you know, misinformation about our history, but also uh, these sort of misperceptions. So, so there's, there's, there's at least two different threads here. First of all, we talked a little earlier about the Homestead Act and how these young people are not aware that their homestead acts in their, their, in their families past. One of a, a local high school has taught our book twice, and we just learned yesterday, someone announced on Twitter that they're gonna teach the book next year. This is not common knowledge. You know, we, we, people talk all the time about black people getting handouts, welfare queens and what have you. Just lift yourself up by your books, bootstraps. But when white people get a handout, they conveniently forget that that happened. <laughs> you know? So we think that would be really powerful, you know, for, for your listeners to find out, yeah. you know, were there Homestead Act land grant patents in their family? And sometimes families have more than one, you know, different branches of your family uh, may have received them. And what happened? Did your family still own that property? What did they do with it? Did they sell it? And then what were those, what did those funds make possible? I think those are really, really important things to talk about. We were stunned to learn that, you know, the history books that many of us, I know I certainly grew up in Fort Worth, Texas with one of these, uh, I went to several different high schools, uh, one of which had a Daughters of the American Revolution chapter <laughs> in the high school. And, you know, we had one of those textbooks that had been commissioned by the Daughters of the- um, Confederacy. 
Yeah. I didn't yeah, know about those folks until I read you all's book. So thank you for that. I mean, it's just stunning. Just stunning. You know, when, when they when they could not convince authors to hew to the narrative that they preferred, which was, you know, one that glorified the South, romanticized the South, you know, slavery was kind of this side thing that happened, you know, or if it was talked about at all, you know, it was couched in this language of, you know, the, these, these enslaved people were part of the family. You know, they just happened to live, you know, in really small, poorly furnished, you know, houses. <laughs> um, and, and, and they were beaten. Anyway, you know, just, but just, just complete lies about, you know, these relationships, why they existed. They downplayed the, the reasons for, not just downplayed, but just, you know, flat out fabricated the reasons for the Civil War. And then they also minimized or completely left out any information about black abolitionists. I mean, you know, black people were the first abolitionists in this country. I mean, from the, from the moment that they, you know, found themselves here and realized, oh my gosh, what a horrible situation that we are finding ourselves in. How can we get away? <laughs> you know, how can we, how can we escape this? Yeah, you could argue that blacks were abolitionists on shipboard. On shipboard, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to turn this ship around, how to get off this ship how to convince these people that, that this is not, you know, something that needs to happen. But all of that, all that history, all that information was removed. I mean, I can remember as a kid being frustrated that there were, you know, we only learned about three different slave insurrections, Nat Turner, Denmark, D.C., and Amistad. And I just was thinking, you know, looking at the kind of work that these people were doing, that my every waking thought would have been about how to escape. Me personally, <laughs> and I, I just didn't make any sense to me that that was not the story. And uh, in fact, it wasn't the story. You know, when we began to do this research, we learned that there were hundreds of insurrections, and white people were very aware of it. They were talking about it in their letters to each other, in their journals and their diaries. They wrote about it, and in their gentlemen's clubs, they talked about it. But they were very careful about keeping that information out of the newspaper, lest the enslaved people learned of it. They were also very aware of the slave insurrections that were happening all across the Caribbean and in Central and South America. And, and similarly, they were keeping that information out of the American press. But there were black people who did learn of it, folks who had learned to read or who overheard conversations. And it certainly did inspire them and let them know that somewhere there are black people who are managing to get out from under this. And if we just keep working at it, you know, we too can eventually free ourselves. But you know, all of that was suppressed in my history books. None of that information was included. And we were just appalled to learn just the, the extent to which these two groups of elite white women, the American Daughters of the Revolution and the United Daughters of the Confederacy had gone to create these textbooks that he, you know that, that that basically told a very different whitewashed story, but also to to banish from the schools the accurate renditions of American history. That was just really astonishing to us how how thorough they were, how successful they were. I mean, these are the same women who raised the money for the the several thousand monuments to the Confederacy across the, the nation, not just in the South. I mean, they convinced legislatures to pony up money for these Confederate monuments. I mean, what did they have on these people? Um,
I mean, it's it's quite amazing to to, to, to think about. Yeah, I, I I was thinking also that one of the conventional responses that we get, and and I know other uh, advocates of reparations get, is is to focus exclusively on slavery as the as the uh, the the case for reparations, and then to say, well, there's no one living today who was enslaved, and there's no one living today who was a slaveholder, and so reparations is pointless. But you know, the case that we make in From Here to Equality is a case that's based not just on slavery. And I and I, I put just in, in quotation marks. I mean, clearly slavery was not a trivial episode. But in, in addition to the long-term consequences of slavery, we also focus on nearly 100 years of legal segregation in the United States, accompanied by nearly 100 massacres that took place uh, all across the country that resulted in the loss of black lives and also resulted in the appropriation and seizure of black-owned property by the white terrorists who conducted these uh, assaults. And then we also take into account the period after the passage of the Civil Rights Acts where we still have mass incarceration, we still have uh, police executions of unarmed blacks, and we still have discrimination in housing credit and employment. But, you know, we would ask folks not only whether or not their families were, were slaveholding families, but we'd also ask, did they benefit from the Homestead Act? And further, we would ask, did they benefit from lynchings and massacres? Uh, and did they benefit from the GI Bill, in particular, in the 20th century, when the federal government shifts away from asset building for whites with land to home ownership? Uh, and the GI Bill was discriminatorily applied. You know, I think Kirsten frequently mentions uh, Ira Katz Nelson's reference to the state of Mississippi, where out of 3,000 returning veterans after World War II, only two black veterans received the home buying provision right. benefits from the GI Bill. That was in a single year. Yeah. yeah. And and when our the, the you mentioned this class at uh, Carborough High School, mm -hmm. I think during the pre the the, the, the semester that just just ended, mm -hmm. the teacher asked his students to explore their own family's wealth backgrounds, and virtually all of the white students in this case had some benefit in their family that was associated with the GI Bill. Right. You know, I think one of the things that's been interesting is this whole confluence of things that have been bubbling up for a number of years. You know, we had imagined when we were writing From Here to Equality that colleges and universities would take up the charge. And boy, were we wrong. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on, everybody? It's Knife Wonder right here, man. And you're checking out Making a Difference with my man, Ken Macon. Keep it locked. Peace. Do you need insurance for your car, home, life, or business? Then trust Jay Harvey, your Allstate insurance agent in Evans, Georgia. He opened his agency in 2017 because he loves helping and working with people. As a husband and father, he understands the importance of helping families prepare for the unexpected. You can get a personalized insurance quote today by calling 706-434-8106.
Jay's office is located at 3118-8 William View Parkway in Evans, Georgia. Remember, you're in good hands with Jay Harvey, your neighborhood Allstate insurance agent. This episode of Making a Difference and every episode moving forward will honor the life and legacy of my dear brother, James Macon. James had a way of telling the truth that endeared him to family and made him respected by his friends and peers. That standard is now my gift and my burden of responsibility. Long live St. James. I mean, you know something when you say that, and um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to uh, interject, but no, it just makes me realize talking to you guys and listening to Kitten's questions. It just really made me realize something. Kitten, I'm sorry to deviate. No, you're fine. But they're trying to replace the conversation of reparations with critical race theory, because Mm -hmm. once you all lay out the case and as you so eloquently do in your book. And when you're on your interviews and you're talking about this and when people hear this information, they're compelled. They're compelled to say, I didn't know it was that serious. So what do you do? You try to interject a new distraction into the conversation Mm -hmm. with this nonsense of critical race theory where all of a sudden now you see more people just coming to the defense of this critical race theory nonsense. And then guess what gets left out of the conversation conveniently? That they don't understand. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that's where the conflation piece comes yeah. in. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. But yes, made... I mean, right. You know, reparations gets pushed aside. Voting, voter suppression mm-hmm. efforts get pushed aside. The, the wealth gap gets pushed aside. There's a lot of, of, of very important conversations get pushed aside. Like what's happening with COVID right now. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the same communities that have been disadvantaged from the onset of COVID are still largely disadvantaged and struggling but that's not in our local press yeah. right now but yeah i agree with you completely yeah. um but you know we there was this whole wave of conversations very early about monuments and memory and our initial thought was you know let's just leapfrog over that you know this is this is a distraction but i think you know it's important for people to understand you know that these founding fathers and founding mothers who, you know, many of us were taught to revere are not worthy, many of them, of the kind of homage and respect and admiration they have been given. And people need to understand that. And that only happens when you break down these histories. You know, here in in North Carolina, at the University of North Carolina, which has been in the spotlight for so many of the wrong reasons. Uh, here, boy. 1619 Project, anybody? <laughs> you know, the campus had a statue of Silent Sam, who was the Confederate soldier. And, you know, one of the founding fathers, Julian Carr, who actually was not a, a, a Civil War veteran. No, but he, no he, was. he was. I thought he was too young to. No, he, he was a Civil War veteran, I believe. He was a but he was not an officer. Ah, okay, okay, thank yeah. you. Um, but he was asked to come and, and make some words at the dedication ceremony when this uh, statue was unveiled. And he, you know, takes it upon himself to recall the time when he was on the streets of Chapel Hill and he encountered a black woman, this is after slavery had ended, who was not sufficiently deferential from his point of view to a white woman who passed by. And he himself laid the lash 
on this black woman. Is it 39 lashes? Yeah, something like that. And, uh, but he manages to work this into his remarks about Silent Sam, the dedication of this Confederate soldier. And his name's on all kinds of things, you know, schools, streets, buildings. You know, he also was revered uh, as a philanthropist. And so you this whole conversation, you know, do you throw out the baby with the bathwater? You know, what, at what point, you know, do we say, you know, no, we, we're not going to honor him. But, but what, slowly, 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 yeah. you know, various institutions are taking his name down. And, you know, we have had to kind of recognize that it is important. All of this is important history. And all of this, it, it kind of helps everyone to understand how we got to here and I think on the one hand, yes, it does feel like a distraction from the, the, the more important question of reparations. But unless people understand why Julian Carr is not a hero and why, you know, why we need to you know, distance ourselves from these kind of from the work that these individuals did to divide, to, you know, to to belittle and to, you know, to subordinate white people. We'll never understand why reparations are important. We were recently on the plantation site, uh, local plantation, uh, Stagdale Plantation here, that was controlled by two interlocking families of tremendous wealth, the Camerons and the Benahans. And at its peak, uh, their four plantations covered 47 square miles. So let that sink in just for a minute. You know, that's that's several that's cities. What, 640 acres per square mile? Yeah. Yeah. Huge amount of land. And Paul Cameron boasted at one time that he himself owned 1,900 black bodies. And I think it's important for people to understand that it wasn't a small number of black people who were enslaved, and it wasn't a small number of white people who were slavers. You know, when you look at the South, there was no state that had fewer than, what, 22 percent? 25 percent of, 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 of every single in every, families. families owned at least one black person. Right. But then there were, what, four states that had over 40 percent? Yes. Um, and then, two and then two, Mississippi and South, South Carolina, Carolina yeah. 55 and 57 percent. Yeah. The venerable white state households. of South Carolina. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to reach that that one percent, one had to have enslaved over 200 black people. But there were many, 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 many people who say, well, my family, you know, we didn't own enslaved, we didn't enslave people. Our first response is, are you sure? Have you you done any research on this topic? Because it's probably not true. You know, one of the tricks they play, you know, and, and Kirsten was emphasizing the fact that you have to think about whether or not people were in families that owned mm-hmm. other human beings. One of the tricks that they play in terms of trying to depress the numbers is to look at the individuals who actually held the deeds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so Julian Carr, for example, never directly owned a slave. Mm-hmm. But he was in a family that oh, yeah. owned slaves. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's what you really have to look at, because that's what gives you a sense of the day-to-day relationship yeah. between these particular individuals and the folks who were the property of their families. Yes. Because they still benefited. But you know something? Um, one of the things that I, me and Kitten, we talked about this, and, and Dr. Darity, I believe you may have sent me an article on this a little while ago 
when we talk about the solution of reparations, so I'm pretty sure you guys are observing some of our um, recent politics with the, you know, the conversations around the filibuster and how they get the voting rights. Um, Mrs. Mullen, you mentioned that earlier. Is there, I, I get frustrated because I'm looking at the, the landscape of everything specifically for reparations. And I say, well, if you can't get voting rights in any type of Congress, even, you know, regardless of who is running it, how can you get reparations? Right. And then you think about the fact that, okay, well, reparations from a federal perspective is probably the best way to go as you guys lay out in your book. Is there any other way around that? You know, where's, how do we balance the, um, the federal expectations that we should, that should be on the government versus any additional way? Cause it, it's my understanding that there have been court cases that have tried it and failed because in many cases, the courts referred to the, the Congress to say, well, this is something that needs to be um, taken up with Congress. And I learned that from a paper you wrote, Dr. Darity. So, I mean, outside the federal legislation, is there any way else to achieve this goal? Well, you know, the, the president could decide that, you know, an executive order would be created bypassing Congress and, you know, create a study commission and uh, give the, that commission a directive to look at, you know, our, our nation's history and make recommendations for reparations. That could happen. But ultimately, the uh, Congress would have, have to, to pass uh, the you know, reparations ultimately. plan. But I mean, we talk about maybe a bit about how sentiments, you know, are changing to some extent. Yeah, but I also want to say that going through the courts is is probably yeah. a dead end, regardless, because the courts don't have the capacity to actually enforce right. a, a plan for reparations. So. Well, and the cases that were brought were, you know one of two things would happen, you know, they would say, well, the statute of limitations has passed right. or they would say, you know, at the time that these horrible immoral acts were, were committed, slavery was legal. Mm. And, you know, so we, we can't do anything yeah. about that. You so know? if you're bringing a suit against Aetna life insurance, what they did it was, was perfectly above, above the law, but so, it was, but it was, yeah. it was, it was legal. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I I think you're 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 must be wanting us to talk about the change in attitude. Yeah, I mean, we know that twenty years ago, you know, polls revealed that only four percent of white Americans supported a reparations plan, mm -hmm. and then four years ago, so sixteen years later, that number had jumped to about sixteen percent, so almost one percentage increase per year. And then at the end of last year, the number was over 30 percent, with a majority of younger white Americans in support, almost a majority in support of reparations. So the trend is moving in the right direction. Now, whether it will continue to move in the right direction and what those individuals meant by reparations, mm -hmm. you know, we don't know exactly. Yeah, but that may be but, why but that's, we're, we're having so many uh diversions and distractions i think that's true it's because people have lots of different notions changing. of what it what it means well also and they want to be part of the conversation too. yeah I but, I, but I, I was thinking of something a little more cynical which is <laughs> uh the change in attitudes makes it appear that this is a more realistic possibility mm. and so those who do not want it to happen 
are coming up with all kinds of ways that could to, be, to subvert the, to the conversation. Subvert the effort, yeah. yeah, that may be. You know, one of the things that we've been encouraging folk to do is to, you know, to interrogate their own families' positions, but also look at their own communities, uh, your informal communities and your formal communities to which you belong, and and begin to ask some questions. You know, first of all, do these communities represent the country as a whole? Um, when you have a need to consult a thought leader, who is that person? If there are contracts contracts to let, or if there are commissions or committees or jobs to fill, do all the people who get those positions look just like you? I was looking at the uh, Board of Trustees of the University of North Carolina. I think there's one, one but of course now, you know, you never know, mm-hmm. just looking at photographs, but it looked like there may be one member a woman who is not white out of what, 24 people? I mean, really? It was extraordinary. You know, there are things that we can do in our own communities, raising these questions so that they don't seem so odd when they come up. You know, if we are, you know, more cognizant of our surroundings and who we are putting forward for promotions, who are putting forward for fellowships and the like, just whatever it is that you you know who's who's being pushed uh, into leadership positions in your in your own community. These are things that can affect decision making, and we need to vote. People, you know, we're not going to reparations is not going to happen with the Congress you know, that we have. You know, it's going to take a lot of effort to make these changes. But just like um, the UNC trustees, I think what five five of them rotate off this year. Yeah. So there's an opportunity to you know, to, to, to bring on, you know, to encourage them to, to bring on people who, you know, represent more of the values of a larger percentage of the state. Yeah. And that's just one example. I mean, there are many organizations and groups that have memberships that should be examined. You know, on the one hand, I guess it's somewhat frustrating to know there are all these fronts that one needs to be aware of and, and tracking, but that's, that's, that's critical particularly when these, these organizations have, these entities have such power, you know, to make decisions that affect all of us. It's really important, I think, that conversations like the one we're having today for folks to make a, make a short list, you know, of organizations that you interact with or that have an effect on your life and look to see who the leaders are and are they accountable to you. That's great. And I do want to say just kind of in the spirit of the tone of the conversation, because we're talking about a congressional electoral politics. And I know some people who may get frustrated with the process say, well, is there a more radical politics that we can look at a more, I mean, just even in the spirit of organizing, you know, to maybe create some more of an, an urgent change and, and, and an urgency in the discussion. Um, are there uh, options in, in that regard that you all can, uh, can speak on? I think the, you know, one of the the dreams of the uh, of the freedmen was that the United States would be a true democracy, and so I think that the only way in which we can really make this happen is through a democratic process, and that means that the hard work has to be done of persuading the folks who are fence fence sitters. sitters to take the, the right direction. I mean, I, I, I think we know that there's about 30% of the population that will be permanently resistant 
to something like reparations, regardless of what kinds of information is brought forward, regardless of what kind of historical record is presented more accurately, that they are not going to change their point of view. But that means that there's a... a <laughs> but that means there's a, there's a remaining 70% of the population that potentially can be moved in the right direction. And that's, that's where the hard work has to be done. I don't think that there's a way around it okay. unless you want to move away from the dream of the democratic principles. Okay. And, I mean, clearly the folks who invaded the Capitol on January 6th uh, had no commitment to democratic principles, but, you know, so be it. <laughs> And that's, I think that's a great way, you know, just for a listening audience and a way to kind of wrap this conversation um, to understand that it does require work. The, the work is the thing. And that's why, again, we appreciate you guys so much because of your, your fearlessness, because of your fervency. And I've even seen, just like I said, since we've had the conversation last year and, you know, we've read through the book and I know I've just been consistent in my, in my conversations about talking about reparations I've just seen a change in the listening audience and just kind of their belief and their, the, that fervency as well. So, you know, it's, it's obviously a small scale, you know, in terms of my listening audience, but the potential for change is there and it just requires people learning more about the history of this country um, and the very real claim that African-Americans have to reparations and the very real need to close um, the racial wealth gap. And so we, Again, thank you, all, thank you too for the work that you've put in and the time that you all have invested. Look, the the decades that you all have invested in this. So thank you, and again, we love you guys so much. Yeah, you guys have definitely mm-hmm. laid a foundation of intellectual infrastructure that will be wow. used thank for you. the decades to come. Because you guys have, regardless of you know any, I don't care what anyone says, you guys have reinvigorated the conversation. You turned on so many new people to the information and now that they know it they're empowered and most importantly they're emboldened so thank you wow y'all are generous thank, thank you, you very much yeah, yeah. always glad to talk with you all definitely and i haven't yeah. forgotten when all this craziness blows over me and kitten are going to take a trip to take <laughs> you guys out to dinner i have not forgotten <laughs> <laughs> outstanding that'd be great <laughs> thank you thank you guys so much you guys have a good evening Take care. care. The revolution will not be televised. You see, a lot of times people see 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 battles and skirmishes on TV, and they say, "Aha, the revolution is being televised." Nah, the results of the revolution are being televised. The first revolution is when you change your mind about how you look at things and see that there might be another way to look at it that you have not been shown. What you see later on is the results of that, but the revolution, that change that takes place will not be televised.